Hello, and welcome to Make Data Human. I'm your host, Anjali Beatty, the CEO of the PsychAI Group, and I'm joined by my favorite data enthusiasts, Micah and DBS. So we're going to be diving into the world of AI legislation and ethics. And joining us in that conversation is the brilliant Mark Deem, who's a partner and solicitor advocate at Wigan and the author of the book AI on Trial, which addresses the current state of AI, identifies why AI needs to be placed on trial, essentially, before passing judgment on it, and also proposes a manifesto for a responsible AI. So all super relevant topics and very near and dear to mine, Micah's and DBS's hearts. So Mark, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for inviting me. It's a pleasure. Oh, very happy to have you. So tell us a bit about your book, AI on Trial. So by background, I am a technology and data lawyer, and it became increasingly clear to me that the intersection between data and technology was in the world of AI. And yet the world of AI doesn't really have a response from a legal perspective. There was very little that was going on about five or six years ago. There were a few parliamentary inquiries going on, and I gave some evidence to the House of Lords Select Committee on this particular area. But nobody's really trying to take an own leadership, if you like, in the area of the legislation, the, the framework that I thought we needed. And so I thought, well, actually, um, if no one else is doing it, maybe there's an opportunity here for me to get involved and see what I could do in that space. But not really being a technologist. In fact, lawyers should never be technologists and technologists should probably not be lawyers. But at the same time, I think we needed to explore this area in a little bit more detail. And so I took a device or a, a process which I knew, which was the legal process, the court process. And through a process like that, I started to investigate a little bit about AI and the need for the ethical, legal and regulatory framework that I thought that should be necessary. And so through the book, what we do is we take, take evidence, if you like, from people who are key players, um, some legislators, some technologists, some thought leaders and academics in this space and ask them about the world of AI and what it means. And then at the end of it, as you say, I put it under a close microscope and came up with a judgment, which is the responsible uh, AI manifesto that we publish at the back of the book. So tell us a bit about that manifesto. What does that include exactly? I start off from the position that you cannot be too prescriptive about the way in which you deal with technology. Technology continues at such a pace that it would be foolish for any lawyer or legislator to try to outrun that. What we therefore have to do is we have to provide quite a benevolent but robust framework which supports innovation but also has some safeguards for those people that are seeking to engage with technology. The worst thing that we could do, I think, as lawyers is to try to close down the world of technology and what people can do. We have to enable people to take the, the steps that they need to to try to lean into the technology and to try to harvest and garner the very best that the technology can provide, but also do it in a safe way and make sure that we have the relevant safety net, if you like, if things go wrong. So what the framework does, and it's a manifesto, it's not descriptive or prescriptive as to what people can or shouldn't do, um, say for one respect, is it tried to identify some key themes that were coming out of the people that we're speaking to as to the way in which we thought that you needed to really start to engage with the technology. And the first one of those is all about transparency and trust. The two go hand in hand. We can't expect people to invest in and develop um, technology in this space if they cannot be trusted or if the technology is not going to be trusted. But it became very clear for all the people that we were speaking to that you're only going to be able to establish that trust if the technologists are being transparent about what it is they're doing. 
So you have this almost symbiotic relationship that exists between transparency and trust. And that has to be at the outset, the start of the manifesto. And so for us as lawyers, we say, well, what do we need to do to establish the transparency and trust? Well, we probably need to have some statement, some impact statement. Now, one call it an AI impact assessment, AIIA, which is probably easier said than done. But um, it's a way in which the technologist can put out on paper what it is supposed to do. Once you've then established and you've made a sense around what you think the technology should do, the next part of the manifesto is really looking at having some oversight. Is it doing what it says it should do? Now, in the manifesto, we think it's important that it's an independent, supranational agency that is over overlooking all of this so that we don't end up with some sort of competing jurisdictions or some competing bodies that are trying to assert their, their rights or their, their position over others to the detriment, I think, of the technology and to other people. So we don't want an arms race, if you like, to develop between the, the regulators. So we have to have some supranational oversight. The third aspect is once you have that in place, we need to have sort of ongoing monitoring of what's actually happening. I tend to use the phrase, we need to have a, a black box for the black box. We need to get used to this idea that, you know, we have a black box in an aircraft. So when an aircraft, um, if it tragically goes down, then the investigators will immediately go and have a look at what the black box said in the last few moments of that flight. But why should we not be monitoring it so that we can actually keep sight and oversight of what's gone wrong um, within the, the algorithms or within the data set? The, the last two of the main parts of the framework the fourth one is that we should have a liability regime that supports innovation. We don't want to be closing this down. This goes back to a point I was saying earlier. The liability regime should start to think about the ways in which we can help the technology develop. What is crucial in that space, to my mind, is to have a situation where if it is legal and appropriate in the online world, then it has to be legal and appropriate in the offline world and vice versa. We can't have any disparity between the two. And if you have that level of liability and that framework set up just right, what you actually find is that the online world and the offline world will work together to push up those standards to the benefit of everybody. And then the final point of the main part of the manifesto is device sanctity. We all have lots of devices which are capturing our data. Those devices should be loyal to their owners. And this feeds into a whole discussion, which I'm sure we may touch on later on, which is to do with data ownership and the importance of data ownership in, in the debate around it on sufficient intentions. The final two aspects of the manifesto, if I just briefly touch on those, are one concerning personhood. There's been a lot of debate about whether or not we should be giving AIs or robots personhood or status as though they were a legal person. Um, we can touch on that a little bit later if you want to, but I think that we can go back to Roman law to find out exactly how we could probably address that. And then the final thing is prohibitions. There have to be some areas where we just cannot go in relation to artificial intelligence, in my mind. We should not be putting devices into the person. We should not be using it to make superhumans. And we have to be very careful when we've got sort of collusion or war-type situations that the AI is not used to develop countermeasures for perceived threat. So in a nutshell, that's the, the seven-point manifesto, uh, a sort of manifesto, if you like, for responsible artificial intelligence. I can see DBS's eyes lighting up, which is perfect because I was going to come to you next. How does that resonate as an AI practitioner? Oh, well, it's, a, it's definitely a chunky nutshell, I can tell you that. I'm still thinking about the first point around transparency. You know, for me, there's, there's detail around how things are developed, right? 
I'm glad you touched on it, Mark. It doesn't just uh, relate to the algorithms themselves, right? It relates to the way in which they've been designed, uh, the data that's been used, and the way that they've been implemented from a technology perspective. And and actually, the algorithms themselves are a very small part of, of the end-to-end process. So I'm interested to talk specifically about transparency, but just to kind of finish off my perspectives on on the seven areas there, I think, you know, when we come to actually deploying and, and the impact piece and the application piece, you know, we're, we're seeing a lot at the moment of of those new regulation discussions around where things are being pointed. And I think that's really poignant and important. The monitoring part, I feel people often overlook that. Um, and I'm really glad that that's one of them because once you've got it in, in production, that's just the first part, right? The dangerous part is what happens to it when it's released into the wild. So the black box for the black box is really resonant to me. Um, and then, you know, the, the latter pieces are bits that start to get out of my comfort area and where actually we need to lean on on the operating model and and the governance frameworks to then oversee what's been what's been put in place uh, and, and kind of monitor that from a regulation and, and policy perspective. You know, when we start to get to the latter areas of of, of personhood and, and data ownership, I think these are probably areas where Micah and Anjali will will have some real opinions. And, and you know, the podcast itself is called Make Data Human, and we've talked a lot before about this concept of of how AI is perceived or how it is being framed as human. And that you know, we believe that that's just inherently wrong, and actually it, it skews the the mindset, and it actually negatively impacts the approach, right? Um, so I think it's really important to have that as part of the framework. It's interesting you should say that about um, making data human. I mean, I think the two things that we really inform any debate and need to inform any debate about artificial intelligence is, is our tendency to sensationalize and our tendency to want to anthropomorphize um, anything to do with this particular technology. Um, as far as the sensation thing is concerned, I think we all love to think about the, the the paradigm or the the image that is portrayed by the you know, television or film, the, the robots that come and take over our lives or whatever. And I, I'm reminded of when we did the Select Committee of the Artificial Intelligence Select Committee for the House of Lords, we published a report um, back, I think it's 2016, called AI in the UK, Ready, Willing and Able. And we thought it was going to be covered in the press. It was covered in the press, not as widely as we hoped, but it was done in a very characteristically sensationalist way. And it, it ran, the headline ran, Lies of the Machine, Boffins Urged to Prevent Fibbing Robots from Staging an Terminator-Style Apocalypse. And that is precisely the problem I think that we have to deal with head-on in relation to artificial intelligence, because there is a world out there where people will actually sensationalise and want to sensationalise. And our fears about the technology feed on that sensationism. It's quite a lurid and unhelpful description of the technology because what we fundamentally have to be addressing are the two building blocks. And those building blocks are data and algorithms. And unfortunately, it may not be sexy. It may not be particularly uh, newsworthy, if you like. But any form of regulation or ethical support for what we're doing has to be looking at the data and has to be looking at the algorithms and that's where the the solution really is it to my mind micah you and i frequently talk about sort of the knee-jerk fear-based reaction that people have to this field whether it's data ownership and gdpr or whether it's purely what the technology can do 
What do you think we're missing and what opportunities do you think we're missing when we're thinking about this whole conversation? What uh, spoke to me a lot, Mark, was, was when you talked about prohibition. And I'd like to add one, which would be like prescription or inclusion, because we reject it on essence. And like you said, we, we make uh, terrible, terrible scenarios because it's all doom rather than gloom, simply because we don't understand it. And, um, I think we, we had an episode where we talked about it. Um, when you talk about all these committees that you have to advise, there's a lot of people on that type of, uh, of committees that don't actually understand what it is and make fear-based uh, decisions where we should take a couple of steps back and look at what the opportunities actually could be. So if we increase transparency, if we increase understanding, how do you gather data? What is data in essence? What are algorithms? Well, to use the term black box, because we use it so often, it's a black box for many, many people. And in response, we turn to fear and thus rejection. And that would also be a question for you. If you talk about inclusion or prescription, how could we endorse that? How could we make people actually use it uh, not force them to use it, but be more open to use it rather than reject it based on based on this this fear or misunderstanding of what it actually is. Certainly in your field of work. And it goes to the heart of transparency. I think people actually want to and need to understand what it is and what it is not, most critically. It is not see the, the, the robots that we see in films. It, it is something a little bit more mundane than that. And if people actually realise that what we're talking about here is data sets and algorithms, that we're talking about computer power and statistical probability, we then don't go down the rabbit holes that are, are being presented to us. There was some interesting sort of phrases that are emerging in the context of ChatGPT at the moment. We talk, we talk about how the technology has hallucinated. Now, for me, the technology doesn't hallucinate. What's actually happening there is that the technology is performing precisely in the way that it's being programmed and should work. The hallucination is caused by the fact that our human brain is instantly able to pick up that is not presenting the results that we expect. And actually, that goes to the heart of this. Because if we assume that the AI is going to be qualitative and providing the correct answer, we're going to go badly, badly wrong. All this is about is statistical probabilities. And we know there are lies, damn lies, and statistics, don't we? But if we can actually get that education piece in, and we can be transparent about what the technology is doing, and I'm not knocking the technology in any way here, it is potentially very, very powerful. But if we approach it in the wrong way and we don't understand what's actually going on, we're going to end up in a, a problematic place. Mark, two things. First of all, I absolutely love the fact that you focus on data and algorithms and that you touched on ChatGPT there. And, and I will give some strong views on what you said as my second point. But the first point is the importance of data has never been more. And I think... You know, there's this narrative around AI and everyone is focused on the algorithms. And I think you hit the nail on the head, the scale of them, right? And that's why these new types of algorithms work, because we're just throwing scale at the problem. And I've been saying for, for months now that there's this imbalance between the focus on the algorithmic development and the scale of those uh, implementations versus the data that actually goes into them. The de facto approach now is to fix the problems after they've occurred, right? So throw scale of data at the algorithms and then add band-aids on after the fact, which is not solving the problem. 
And then to your point about explainability, I would actually challenge that slightly. How they should work, the definition of hallucination, I, I agree that there's a human perception there and, and we are skewed by our you know, preconceived notions of, of what is right and wrong or what the output should be. But these algorithms, back to that first point around transparency, and for me, it is the single hardest thing is to explain how these algorithms work because honestly, we don't know. Even you know, in the greatest research labs across the world, we're not clear on how especially these attention-based transformer models really work. And they don't have the same principles as as our kind of fundamental statistical models that we understand and and we can you know deconstruct. They're just unpredictable, and at the moment they're they're not. You can't deconstruct them in a way that how they should work. And um, because you know, and I'm specifically referring to generative based algorithms here. They are generative in nature, right? And there's not a degree of consistency that you can design within them. You know, there are uh, levers and uh, knobs that we can turn to kind of pin them down to stop uh, creating different outputs every time we run them. But even when we kind of narrow that down to a consistent set of outputs, we still can't explain how they've come to that, right? And there's a really nice paper that's been released this week about their inability to, to take a piece of logic and flip it, right? We can't understand how these algorithms cannot do that. When you know we've designed them to learn words and, and the sequence of words and predict the next word, that's the only thing we know when it comes to in the wild inference or for the non-techies, that's when you run the algorithm against a new set of information you're asking for outputs against. We can't say how uh, they're going to return outputs. So back to that very first thing you talked about around transparency, I think there's a set of principles that we have to abide by but because the technology is still quite primitive in how it actually works, we're not there yet in being able to explain it. So for me, you then get to the importance of the outputs, right? And, you know, we talk about safeguards at the moment. And, you know, I don't like this idea that we are applying downstream classifiers, for example, to check whether something is toxic or to check whether something, you know, doesn't abide by our safeguarding rules. But that's all we have at the moment. Uh, because of the algorithms that we're we're referring to. And then I'll add one final point, which uh, is another kind of bugbear of mine at the moment, and it's the view of isolation. Uh, So, you know, you you can't look at a single algorithm today and rely on it. That's my opinion. I think the answer is to stack up algorithms uh, that perform different types of tasks. And that's kind of what we're doing with with safeguarding and, and, and band-aiding. But but really, you know, algorithms are designed uh, for specific purposes and they should be used in conjunction with each other against these principles and uh, frameworks that we're, we're putting in place. So, you know, generative AI versus all other AI that came before is something that really bugs me. And, and I think we need to kind of, you know, you, you say it quite nicely, you say algorithms. And I think that's a nicer way of putting it. You know, no one really knows what the definition of AI is. And it skewed our thinking for the reasons you mentioned earlier. But if we view it as a set of, of algorithms, I think that's a, a much more productive way of, of doing it. More productive. And I think we can see more of the opportunities then in that instance. Because if you look at, let's say, the last 15 years, what we went from big data being the shiny disco ball, then it was natural language processing being the shiny disco ball, then AI, now generative AI. And everything that came before it is now sort of lumped in the category of generative AI, even if it is not generative AI. And we don't 
have the ability necessarily to sort of distinguish these things. And it also probably doesn't help that for many of us in the field, we sort of get sucked into using this sort of language because it's the only way to frame, to sell, to position, whatever it is technologically that we have in the market, which then I think just highlights then that like dire need for transparency. There's something that's been sitting in my mind for the last few months, though, watching the writers and the actors strike in the U.S., and I don't know if the the three of you have been following this closely, but it really highlights that whole question of ownership, of revenue generation, of what we should do, of what we should not do. And I'm curious if, if the three of you have a hard opinion on this. I would go back to the industrial revolution. We had to learn to work together with machines. <laughs> if there were machines that, that uh, were built to dig, people that uh, owned shovels could get rid of their shovels and, and do something else. I think slowly this is this is similar. Uh, it's not the AI running the world, but it's the AI, the, the AI or, or algorithms of data, as you say uh, correctly, Mark, that enable us to become more efficient. So it's the enablement part rather than the taking over part. And it goes so rapidly, it's something to get used to, right? You cannot just do that from one day to the other. So you need to involve it in education. So uh, besides teaching children where all capitals of the world are, maybe you should teach them some basic codes and what it is and what it can do. Um, I think Lego has a really nice, uh, if we can make a virtual seat for children, uh, that, that teach them the, the, the fundamentals. So it's learning to work together with it rather than, than rejecting it on essence. And maybe that's not our generation that can do that, but it's the next. Anjali, when you were... Uh... When you were talking there, the, the thing that popped into my head was literacy is is one thing, right? Like Mark said earlier, we can never expect lawyers to to understand how algorithms work, and I cannot uh, be expected to understand law. But I think the way that the two can work together, and I will get to the point, I promise, around the strike, is having the principles in place that can be asked of those technologists, right? And those are the questions and the frameworks that we should be able to answer against. And one of those is around the data. And I think for me, this is where you know the, the striking piece comes in, which is the use of the data and the permission of the data that essentially captures the craft that we are trying to replicate in the AI. And that now has threatened the way that an industry works day to day. And it's been released by surprise. It's taken you know everyone by surprise at the capabilities and the challenge that this puts in front of us in terms of how these folks now work day to day or how they work moving forwards. And I think to your point, Micah, is it's the human in conjunction with the AI. And it is going to revolutionize the way that, that the industry works. But I think the problem is that we've stepped over the principle piece and we've kind of caught them off guard. And you know, it's something new I've been saying around service design and the fact that most businesses and indeed industries are built around people and they've been designed around people. The way we're designing technology today is not around people. It's in isolation of people. So I think the answer to this is actually we should have developed it with them, right? But technology doesn't work like that, right? We've moved so quickly and it will not, you know, like Mark said, it will not stop moving quickly. But I think now we're in this position, we need to kind of back reel a little bit and start working with those people on their terms, you know, around the permissions, around the principles that, that Mark was outlining earlier to do things right. And, 
you know, not let technology run away and, and kind of uh, the genie is out the bottle to some extent, but we're still in a place where we can shift, you know, the future direction um, to, to Micah's point. So I'm I'm positive about it, but, you know, the, the framework that, that Mark put in front of us is key and, and core to how we bridge data technology in one area and then, you know, the other side of, of how, really how the world works, right? Um, which does encompass industries and, and law and, and all the things that are not technology. If I can synthesize a few of those ideas, I think actually when you posed the question, what you started off doing was the, the social evolutionary process. You started talking about data, data capture, big data, the rise of more sensors, which has then led to these large language models. Well, that is an evolutionary process that we've seen in relation to technology. We tend to have a view we now got to AI and we suddenly jumped to the end position rather than seeing it as being an evolutionary process which is continuing. And I think the reason why we should continue to see it as evolutionary is because there will be a phase now, which I think both um, DVS and Michael are referring to, where we have to see the technology as augmenting our intelligence. And so we're going to go through a phase now where we should be really focusing on augmented intelligence rather than the, the the final goal, which we might all be jumping to, which is a, a world in which where the computers are doing everything. There's um, a, a famous American researcher, scientist and futurist called Roy Amara, and he um, described our societal relationship with technology as one where we always tend to overestimate its impact in the short term, but underestimate its effect in the long term. And I think that really does apply here. Because what we are trying to do here, we're in that change where we're overestimating its impacts in the near term. What we actually need to be doing is working out how we can best support it, best use it. How can we lean into this technology to augment our own existence at this moment in time so that actually don't underestimate its effect on long-term, but we're party and we're traveling that evolutionary journey with the technology so that you know we're, we're entirely in control um, of, of the entire process. But that automatically also brings it to your point of uh, supranational oversight, right? Who would be the right body to do that? Is that a commercial role or is that a political role? Is it nation states that who, who should take ownership of that? And how do you get everyone to the table? And um, that's that's the fundamental problem here. We have a big, growing problem, as I see it, not just in relation to the oversight and the way the technology is developing, but also the way that data is being captured. Because what we're going to increasingly see, to my mind, is that unless you exist within the data or within the data sets, you're not going to be part of this technology. So, so long as we have some form of digital poverty in this world, where people's data is not being captured, is not being represented, we have a real problem here that actually everything's going to become very skewed. And what we're regulating is not a, a, a real world perspective on the, the way the technology should be. But it's very much a global north dominated, probably Western economy or some digital economies that are really dictating the way that technology is developing. And that's a real problem because we have digital poverty in this world already that the, the, the global south is experiencing at the moment. But even within our own countries, our own personal relationships with data and with technology is very different. Um, the way in which our smart homes will capture female data is very different from the way we capture male data. And so we have to guard against these things in the way that we're capturing these data sets as well. Otherwise, if no good just having these uh, regulators looking at it, we're not going to be really regulating something that's fair, that's equitable, that's equitable and, and, and trustworthy. In your mind, how do we course correct for that? The thing about bias, 
um, if, if we deal with bias, is that we have to recognize that it exists. It reflects who we are, it reflects what we are. We can't approach this thinking there is no bias or therefore we need to whitewash or we need to remove the bias. It's not that simple. And, and so when we look at that in terms of the ethical, legal and regulatory framework that I put in the manifesto, one of the things I'm trying to encourage or, or recommend that happens is that when you come to test and you sandbox and you test the technology, you should be test, uh, testing it to see if it impacts any slice or any part of society greater than any others. And if it does, then you might need to correct. Unfortunately, what we can't do is we can't, from the beginning, instantly identify where the device may arise from and co correct. So I think we're going the wrong way. What we have to recognize is bias arises in three ways, I think. I think it arises in relation to the data that is captured. It arises in relation to the data that is not captured, but should be captured. And it arises because of certain proclivities of those people that are coding or implementing the algorithms. And so you have to be aware that in each of those three phases, but the best way of doing it, I think, is in that sandbox, sandbox phase, you're testing to see whether any particular um, constituency of a society is impacted more than the others. And, and for me, Mark, that has to be part of the core algorithmic development process, right? It can't just be an after the fact, especially now with kind of human in the loop and this new kind of ability to tweak algorithms, right? And realign, um, which I really don't like as a term, but, and then go back to what data have we used, reassess, refine and improve. It has to be part of a process. You know, in in years gone by, that the, the way that we've approached it has not been a process. And this idea of of kind of product thinking and and continuous learning and validated learning has to be core. And and I think that the main gap at the moment is is the, again back to the separation of of types of people, right? And and you mentioned the third one around how the algorithms are implemented and the bias that might exist by those that are in the room you know, asking the questions and, and validating the design and the data. There's not the the, the diversity of, of a people or thought, how they're developed and they're not developed alongside those that can provide that, that perspective. So it's kind of a an interoperability of types of people, um, not just, you know, techies sat in a room. And that comes back to the op model. And then the questions that we have to ask ourselves as a group it's a very idealistic way of working. I've just outlined there, but I think that's the only way to get to that sort of purest level of answer and change the, the, the way of working today when it comes to, to developing these, these algorithms. Mark, you had mentioned at the beginning of the episode that uh, there's certain areas of AI that are no-goes, like implanting it in our bodies, for example. Can you elaborate on that? Not specifically implanting it in our bodies, but in general for you, what are the no-go areas for AI? I think there are probably three areas, which I would say were absolute prohibitions. The first for me is I think we should resist any move which augments human beings physically or fuses them with AI. I think it should apply equally to able-bodied and disabled individuals, unfortunately, but I think it's very important. I think that's a slippery slope that starts, as soon as you start to introduce the technology into or, or fuse with the human being, I think we end up in a, a potentially difficult place that would be very hard to contain and we have to be very careful with going down that path, in my view. The second one I think I touched on briefly earlier was AI in military technology. I think that requires a very careful consideration 
We touched on it briefly. The fact is that AI lacks definition. And if we talk about the rules of engagement in, in a real-world military environment, we need to know what those rules of engagement would be. And that requires some very specific definitions of what is we're talking about here. And therefore, we have to make sure that's held up to international standards, which I think is going to require some degree of unanimity of thought, if you like, as to how are we going to go down that path? But until we do that, I think we have to be very careful. Otherwise, you can get a gradual erosion and you can find that AI is starting to enter into the sort of warfare theatre, if you like. And the third one, I think, is any deliberate use of algorithmic collusion, I think we also have to prohibit. That's one where you're designing algorithms specifically to interact with or affect another algorithm with an intent to cause harm or unethical gain to the detriment of society or individuals. Without some lawful justification, I think we should just be prohibiting those from, from, from the get-go if we possibly can. I can see Micah and GBS having many, many thoughts all co-occurring. Uh, it's also a little bit dystopian maybe of me to say, well, uh, can we? <laughs> or are we already past that point? If we uh, talk about uh, the use uh, in humans, for instance, or predicting disease, does that also mean that you would say, no, we will also not use it for that? Because it can, right? Uh, I think it's uh, geometrics. You can predict whether or not somebody, uh, based on their genetic composition, will get a disease or not, and if we need to intervene. Would that also be an example where you say, no, we should not? Or is that not interfering with human? I think anything that's monitoring, I think it's the same with, with warfare, to be honest. Anything that is monitoring AI, those are sort of threats, if you like, I think it should be acceptable. But I think what we have to be very careful of is there's a slippery slope in that. If it's just monitoring, if it's just sort of informing to help other decisions be made, I think, yes, that should be okay. However, we've got to be very careful because it's very easy to move from that into a situation where in the military says countermeasures are taken in response to that perceived threat or in the human body something else happens to counteract something that becomes very tricky so at this moment i think you prohibit and you you progress a little bit more carefully in the way you go down those paths because they need to have some real some more moral and ethical considerations but bearing in mind morals and ethics will vary from culture to culture from country to country and there's a very a real problem that we're going to have going down that path too um, this is a really tough one, Mark. And, um, you know, we're, we're getting into that territory of sci-fi, right? And uh, <laughs> what sci-fi has done to how we view AI. But it's also a really difficult one for me because I always talk about AI as as being almost we should view it as a different species. Right? And I think I've said that to these guys before, kind of like how dolphins are viewed and, and the use of dolphins for, you know, their ability in sonar. It's a kind of simple example. But... I talk about AI should not be, we should not be trying to replicate humans and we should be using it to facilitate us as humans to become better right, as a species. That's a difficult one because actually it conflicts a little bit with your view and, and I, I'm not sure where I am right now, especially from the physical perspective. I'm mainly thinking around prosthetics, for example. This ability to incorporate AI in some form to fill gaps in our abilities, right? Which is slightly different to the composite addition to abilities. And that's, I think, where it gets difficult. But I'm not sure how we're going to stop the human nature to want to get better and potentially the vulnerabilities that that, that presents us and, and risks from, dare I say, superpower perspective, 
yeah, I mean, how do you govern anything, right? Um, it's just a, a scary thought to me about kind of natural progression that we're seeing. And I'm also reviewing my my standpoint on AI and how it should be considered long, alongside humans. But um, this is why I love these chats, because it makes me go away and question, you know, my, my views. But um, I'll have to think about it, Mark, and uh, come back to you. Fundamentally, I think when we take a step back and look at this, I actually think these of our engagement with and our thirst to understand what this technology can deliver, which is probably going to be the best safeguard against these tech sessions, because that is what's going to sort of really empower us to unlock and leverage you know, what it promises to be. And I think actually if we take a step back and actually use this as an opportunity to educate people about what it is, what it does, what it can do, I think fundamentally the decision doesn't become as dystopian or the, the view doesn't become as dystopian because we're engaging with it. And if we can go back to this fundamental transparency and trust, if we can see what it's doing or could do, then we can trust it in a way that we won't if we perpetuate the sensationalism, the anthropomorphization of the technology, because that's where uh, we get into difficulties because we can't suddenly see what's actually going on. We can't see the mechanics, if you like, for the, the dystopian world that's being presented in, in media and films. A hundred percent. And I think that comes round circle to the initial list of principles and the blueprint that you took us through at the beginning as a way to combat that. I echo that completely. Mark, you're absolutely brilliant. And it's so great to have somebody of your expertise and the way that you think about this in conjunction with Micah and DBS and the way that we all think about this as well. So a big thank you to you, Mark, and a big thank you, Micah and DBS, because this was absolutely brilliant. And thank you for listening. I'm your host, Anjali Beatty, and you can find us where all good podcasts live. <laughs>